Welcome to Cardiothoracic Imaging, a podcast that explores the legends, legacies, and lessons of chest and cardiac imaging. I am Bert Dreher, Chairman of the Department of Diagnostic, Molecular, and Interventional Radiology at the Mount Sinai Medical Center and the Icon School of Medicine, as well as a past president of the Radiologic Society of North America. I cordially invite you to sit back and relax as we journey through chest and cardiac imaging through the lens of the field's leading experts. And now, from the Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City, New York, it is my pleasure to introduce your hosts, Adam Bernheim and Michael Charlie. Welcome to Cardiothoracic Imaging. We're so excited to have today a very special guest, Dr. Suba Dugumarthi from the Massachusetts General Hospital. We're just so delighted uh, that we have his time with us today to share some of his expertise. He is an amazing person and an amazing radiologist. Um, and I'm joined as always by my distinguished co-host, Dr. Mike Chung. How are you today, Mike? Hi, Adam. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. And I think Mike is going to give a formal introduction to Suba in a moment, but I just want to also give a more informal one. Uh, anybody who's ever worked with uh, Suba before knows, uh, first of all, just his raw IQ and brilliance. He's one of the sharpest, smartest uh, people that I've ever met. And at the workstation on a day-to-day -day basis, he reads cases very quickly and he doesn't miss anything. And he always gets right to the core of the issue. I remember many cases reading alongside with him, and there were cases that I thought were pretty straightforward, or you've read through the CT and you think that you have the diagnosis and you know what's going on, and it's a complete case and, and you're ready to move on. And all of a sudden, Suba will look at it for a quarter of a second, and instantly he corrects the case in a way that you never would have thought for a million years. <laughs> That's how the case developed. Have you ever met anybody like that, Mike? No, but I'm excited to meet him today, he, actually. He's really remarkable. <laughs> we used to joke in conference that if, if uh, there would be a problem with PACS, that uh, he could still get the diagnosis even without looking at the image. Mm. He's, he's really a brilliant person, and we're just so honored to have him with us today. And I think Mike will give uh, a full introduction as well. Yes, Dr. Digamarthy, it's a true honor to have you here today. I just wanted to introduce you. Uh, you are a thoracic radiologist currently practicing at the Massachusetts General Hospital. Uh, you did your fellowship training there as well and also some training in India. You have interest in lung cancer imaging and using some of the newer technologies when approaching lung cancer. Uh, you have over 130 overall publications, including multiple textbook chapters. This includes 13,000 citations under your name. And you have a recently published textbook uh, entitled Problem Solving in Chest Imaging, which is an excellent title because there are a lot of problems when it comes to chest imaging uh, that we encounter on a daily basis. Uh, at the Massachusetts General Hospital, you're the Director of Quality and Safety in Thoracic Imaging, and you are also a part of the Lung Cancer Screening Committee at the IASLC. So it's a true pleasure to have you here today. Thank you for spending some time with me. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, meet my old fellow Adam, who is now so accomplished. And Mike, it's uh, very, I'm very happy to meet you. Likewise. The, the, the pleasure is ours. And uh, Supa, since you 
have developed an expertise in lung cancer. We'd like to make the theme of our talk revolve around lung cancer and lung cancer screening. So uh, just to start off, could you tell us a little bit about what lung cancer screening is like at Massachusetts General? The one thing I should say about uh, our program is we start a little late, but uh, we got it right. So we had uh, everything uh, set up in a way to run this program successfully. So uh, people start the lung cancer uh, screening program without realizing what they're getting into. So it is not just uh, doing uh, CAT scans to, uh, for patients who are at risk for develop, to develop lung cancer, uh, not in this, just a high risk uh, population. But we have to understand that once you screen these patients, there should be uh, a, a system where you can uh, track these patients, the nodules, offer uh, proper management uh, guidance to treat these patients. That is the most important thing. If you just screen everyone without uh, offering the other services, the, it, we will not meet the goals of uh, lung cancer screening. So when we started at MGH, uh, Dr. Joanne Shepard is the director of the lung cancer screening program and also director of our division. She uh, gave a lot of, uh, uh, put a lot of thought into it. So we uh, figured out how to manage these patients. If we uh, call, uh, label somebody as having uh, lung rats 3 and, or 4, how to direct uh, these patients, uh, how to uh, manage these patients' uh, uh, findings. So uh, very outside, we are very, very, uh, uh, we, we paid a lot of uh, uh, focus. We focused on this particular aspect. We started a lung nodule clinic. So we would uh, divert most of the patients uh, who have uh, higher uh, lung rats uh, uh, scoring, such as three or four, into this uh, lung nodule clinics. And uh, we started a clinic where uh, a specialist, uh, such as uh, medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, pulmonologists, uh, surgeons, would be, uh, would be attending this clinic. We would uh, review all these uh, scans. We will uh, uh, discuss them thoroughly. Uh, we would uh, decide how to approach these patients. Then the patient would see a specialist. Though the patient is seeing only one specialist, uh, all the specialists are weighed in, including the radiologist who is the, the central uh, uh, person uh, in this uh, uh, lung nodule uh, clinic. So when the uh, physician uh, meets the patient, he, we already know what we are going to do. Uh, it's um, the we, we understood the problem thoroughly. So we sometimes you would say, okay, this is a case for surgeon. So surgeon would uh, meet the patient and would say, okay, you are uh, you likely have a lung cancer. The options are we can do a surgery, wedge uh, resection, or we can do a, uh, a fiducial placement for to facilitate surgery, or we can do a biopsy to prove the cancer. All those things. And somebody who is not uh, fit to undergo surgery or if the patient's preference is not to undergo surgery, then radiation therapist would see the patient. So we would decide all these things. And for many of these uh, patients, uh, some of the nodules, though they are labeled as three or four, really they're not lung cancers. We know that um, they may not be real lung cancers. Maybe they are just to be um, followed for some more time. Then eventually they'll declare themselves out as benign or they are uh, malignant. So those would be seen by either medical oncologist or uh, the pulmonologist. So these are these are the things we decided first. So then we also had uh, we created a very good database. So we kept track of every patient uh, who underwent uh, lung cancer screening in our hospital uh, because one of the uh, problems is you do not want this patient to slip through the cracks. So we do not want to miss a potential cancer. The whole purpose of screening these patients is to diagnose cancers at early stage and not to uh, miss any uh, cancer. Uh, 
uh, even if you have missed the first time around if they come for regular screening you can still catch them at early stage so that has been emphasis so we did not have a navigator for uh, the first few years of our lung cancer screening uh, uh, program but then we quickly hired a navigator the hospital administration also realized the importance of having a navigator to attract uh, these patients then so many other things we had to uh, have the standard protocol across various uh, imaging centers as you know MGH is a big big uh, place there are a lot of satellite centers so we had the standard protocols uh, all over so it's very interesting uh, I don't know if a lot of places have nodule centers or nodule programs like that does th what role does the radiologist play like during a clinic day are they present too and could you talk about it uh, yes talk uh, about uh, that uh, the it's a very interesting concept uh, where uh, a radiologist actually is the uh, is, is it plays a crucial role. So we get a list of all the patients which are who are scheduled to be seen in the lung nodule clinic that day. So radiologist uh, goes through the images. So we already uh, uh, know what the nodule is, whether it's a really a malignant nodule, because most of the nodule management is based on imaging findings. Whether the nodule uh, is uh, getting bigger, sometimes we go look into the epic. We'll uh, search for old studies. If the nodule, though, is concerning uh, the first uh, screening study, but if we dig up old studies, if the nodule has been stable, we know that it can be downgraded to lung rats too. So we look at all those uh, uh, scans more carefully. Sometimes patients who come to the clinic uh, bring series with them uh, their, of their old uh, examinations, and the, the nurse who runs the uh, pulmonary nodule clinic, and she would upload those images into the packs. So before going to the meeting, we would review all those images. You hold this clinic once a week, is that right? Yes, we used to hold it uh, every two weeks. Now, because of uh, the increased uh, volume, we are holding it every week almost. How many patients do you discuss at each pulmonary nodule clinic? We discuss around uh, 16 to 20 patients. Wow. And here in 2019, how many lung cancer screening cases overall are you doing in your hospital? We do five to six cases per day. And each is reported according to the standard lung rats template? Do you have your own separate MGH template for no, that? No, we, we follow the lung rats template. Um, as per the guidelines uh, laid out by uh, ACR, we all have to stick to ACR, uh, uh, mandated uh, lung rats um, uh, categories. And uh, we also follow the uh, all the uh, rules laid out by ACR. Uh, we are in compliance with the, the federal uh, regulations and the, the Medicare and uh, other uh, CMS requirements. In routine chest CT, one of the easiest and most common ways of missing lung cancer is if you have a subsolid nodule or an endobronchial lesion. When I think of you, Suba, I think of you of, as having a very thorough search pattern and no nodule goes undetected if you're reading the case. So um, I just know legally in medical malpractice, if a, if a chest radiologist is going to be sued for missing a lung cancer, it's usually either an endobronchial lesion or a non-solid lesion or a lesion very close to a central vessel. These are the easiest nodules to miss. What in your search pattern of regular standard chest CTs do you do to ensure that you're detecting these nodules? So it's a great question. Actually, you answered the uh, question yourself. If we realize what are our blind spots on a CT scan uh, before you uh, close the examination, go back to these blind uh, spots and uh, take a second look. So it's very easy to pick up all peripheral subpleural nodules. Uh, but once the nodules come uh, closer to the hilum, uh, running along the vessels, then it becomes a little more challenging, particularly in a, a patient without uh, who has studies is done without IV contrast, such as in lung cancer screening. Uh, so the the only way is to, uh, okay, there's blind spots are there for everyone, 
so if we realize that these are the uh, nodules or locations uh, which are uh, more tricky for an individual radiologist so we have to pay special attention the most important thing is everyone should realize okay this is my blind spot i'm not very good like i'm not good at uh, picking up refractors so i know that so before i close up the study okay take a second look at uh, refractors so sometimes uh, mips help uh, sometimes uh, viewing it in a different orthogonal plane like sagittal or coronal would help uh, but also tendons still we miss nodules it's impossible not to miss a nodule even for uh, a very uh, thorough radiologist, we end up missing some nodules. The, the good thing about uh, these nodules is uh, you don't have to pick up all the nodules in a given patient. If you picked up most of the nodules, and if say you, there are 10 nodules, each say are of 6 or 7 millimeters, if your guideline is to do a re-imaging in 3 months, so sometimes you can make an argument, why should I pick up more nodules? But uh, we should not take that approach, but uh, we cannot pick up all the nodules. But still, uh, if you know what your blind spots are, you should take a second look at those areas. I think you'll, uh, you'll end up picking up more nodules. Also, because you have a role with the IASLC, when you read a case, to what extent are you thinking about the TNM staging system? And when you report in your radiology report of a case that you think is a possible or probable lung cancer, do you report lymph nodes or other findings in a way that at all is in context with the TNM staging? That, that's, a, that's a very good question. So uh, the, 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 the fundamental uh, question is, even if you know uh, this patient has a lung cancer, should radiologist say, uh, um, spell out the TNM staging in the reports? So my, uh, my approach is, uh, the TNM staging is basically a pathological staging. It is not just a clinical staging. So if you see a metastasis, very it's easy for you to say, this patient does have metastasis. But you're talking about uh, the T staging, starting from T1 to T4, when you're talking about T1A, T1B, the dimensions of what we measure on imaging may not be the true dimensions as seen by the pathologist. Ultimately, the pathology, uh, pathological staging is the gold standard. But in, uh, similarly for the nodes, if you're going only by size criteria, Okay, so I think the mediastinal lymph nodes are big, therefore it is N2 disease, or supraclavicular lymph nodes are big, so this is N3 disease. We know that uh, our accuracy uh, of predicting malignancy based on this morphological criteria, particularly size, is, is, is not a good, uh, good way to go about it. So we tend to have false positives, and we also know that there are many, many lymph nodes which are small but still contain micrometastasis. So these are the, I think, I think the staging should be ideally be done after resection, but a radiologist can uh, assign a M stage more confidently, then the T and uh, N are not so relevant. So I would always say, there's a cancer consistent with uh, uh, a lung lesion, a lung nodular lung mass consistent with cancer, and large mediastinal and hilar lymph nodes considering for metastasis. I do say if there's a ipsilateral or contralateral mediastinal lymph nodes or supraclavicular lymph nodes, then I will definitely say this is highly considering for metastasis lesion in the adrenals or uh, some, some other body part. The other thing is, I'm a thoracic radiologist. I do not interpret the brain. I do not interpret the abdomen and pelvis. So uh, to assign a TNM, I think we should have looked at all the uh, uh, images 
of all the uh, body parts to for a just for a thoracic radiologist to assign a T and an M based on just uh, chest interpretation uh, I think would be taking too much of risk so we know that uh, many of these patients have occult metastasis if you do a PET imaging around 5 to 25 percent of them will have occult metastasis so it would be premature to assign a TNM staging just based on chest CT so our practice at MGHS yes we are very well uh, aware of this new uh, iterations of TNM staging are currently the eighth edition but we tend not to do it. The best place to uh, assign a TNM staging would be in a, a multi-disciplinary um, tumor board or in a multidisciplinary thoracic oncology clinic when you have all the information, when surgeon has sampled the mediastinal lymph nodes, then we can say, yes, this is this category. This is a TNM. Therefore, this is the stage of the lung cancer. On the topic of the impressions of our reports, I think sometimes radiologists find it difficult when they're trying to decide on what to recommend as a next step when you see a suspicious lesion or a suspicious nodule. Um, at MGH or just in your practice, do you tend to just recommend straight to surgery or do you recommend a PET-CT or biopsy? Um, how do you kind of differentiate between those? At MGH, uh, we have very good uh, working relationship with our uh, referring uh, physicians, uh, referring clinicians. So we look at the uh, the we look at the scan. Uh, we tailor it to the uh, referring physician. Say, for example, a thoracic oncologist is uh, requesting a uh, examination. So we know that thoracic oncologist will knows very well which study to pursue for to uh, optimize the treatment for that patient. If a thoracic surgeon is recommending, again, he is very well uh, uh, aware of different modalities which are available to determine the diagnosis. So we make specific recommendations mostly for uh, non-specialists, for primary care physicians. Uh, we tend to call them, actually. We tell them that uh, this could be a cancer. Uh, there are several ways to uh, make a diagnosis. At this uh, stage, the, the nodule is big enough for us to biopsy it. If you want to pursue further, you can do a PET imaging, or maybe you can send it straight to a lung nodule clinic or a thoracic oncologist or a thoracic surgeon. They'll be in a better position to decide what to do. But in many situations, our suspicion is not very high. Then we just say, do a three-month follow-up if it persists, or six to eight-week follow-up. If it persists at that time, uh, we'll decide what to do. So that would be our approach for uh, primary care physicians. For specialists, they know very well what they're doing. There are some patients that have diffuse lung disease. For example, a patient with diffuse pulmonary fibrosis may be a pattern like UIP, which confers an increased risk of lung cancer, where it's very hard sometimes to detect new or growing nodules on a background of diffuse lung disease, but you know the patient's at increased risk. Do you have any hints that you could share with us for when you look at a patient, let's say with UIP, to be able to ensure that you're not missing uh, potential lung cancers? That's, that's a very interesting question, and it's a very relevant question. It's, it's a tough uh, thing to decide uh, between a confluent fibrosis, which looks like a nodule, uh, versus a true uh, lung cancer. As you pointed out, there is uh, the increased risk of uh, lung cancer in patients with fibrotic uh, lung disease. So the way I look at it is uh, you obviously would not miss a big mass. So probably you, are, you will miss uh, small nodules around uh, less than a centimeter. So based on the condition of this patient, uh, so uh, many of these patients may have advanced pulmonary fibrosis. It may not be possible to uh, do a, a nodule biopsy percutaneously in these patients. And at the same time, these patients uh, would also have uh, problems uh, undergoing a definitive therapy such as radiation therapy. So, and anyhow, these patients uh, get a follow-up imaging in a short uh, uh, interval. So that usually these people are followed every three to six months. 
So uh, when in doubt, we would not raise the possibility of uh, cancer. We'll say, okay, this remains suspicious for cancer. We would raise the suspicion, but would not come down heavily on it because uh, to prove a diagnosis of cancer in these patients is not easy. So it is uh, difficult uh, to biopsy these nodules. Uh, PET uh, can be done, but again, sometimes active uh, uh, inflammation in the setting of uh, active disease uh, may itself cause some false positives. Uh, so we do not know how to deal with this one. So my approach personally, the way I would do is, okay, if it is not a clear-cut cancer, do a short interval follow-up imaging. Then you cannot be 100% sure. Many times when I thought it was a nodule, it turned out to be just confluent fibrosis. And few times I thought it was just confluent fibrosis, they have shown uh, uh, interval growth. They declared themselves of cancer. So you have to do a short interval follow-up imaging. Do you have any thoughts on any should like whether there should be any screening guidelines for these kind of patients um, just like smokers who have an increased risk for cancer should uh, ILD patients also be receiving or also screening. maybe patients with dip neck that might right. be an increased risk for carcinoids mm -hmm. should we recommend that we follow these patients or screen them it's it's a, it's a difficult question to answer um, because we are all influenced by the uh, few um, cases uh, we have seen so I've seen a number of patients with ILD who uh, do develop cancers and they they tend to uh, evolve pretty quickly. They become advanced cancers in a short period of time. Uh, but at the same time, when you're recommending uh, screening um, tests, uh, it is a decision which is based on uh, prevalence of the disease in the uh, population. It should be supported by epidemiological data for something which is as raised as uh, pulmonary fibrosis, fibrotic disease. So it is very difficult to uh, implement a screening program. I'm not an epidemiologist, but uh, this you require uh, epidemiological evidence to uh, support screening in this uh, population. Uh, then uh, you also have to understand that many of these patients uh, also have uh, other confounding factors. Uh, they may be smokers. So then uh, these patients uh, may have other risk factors uh, such as asbestos exposure. Then uh, you tend to do screening uh, in patients in whom you can make a difference where the survival should be, the expected life, uh, life uh, expectancy should be decent uh, for us to do screening to uh, show uh, benefit in survival and uh, show in terms of uh, the dollars you, you spent to save a life. So we do not know the prognosis in this patient. So you cannot recommend a screening program unless you uh, work out these other details. So we should know that this patient will have a reasonably long uh, life expectancy. Then there should be a clear uh, 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 regimen to screen these patients. Then you should know the options. If you, what's the point of detecting a cancer when you cannot treat the cancer? So what are the options available for this patient? So it, it gets into uh, many other things. So we cannot recommend uh, screening in every patient. So even for our high-risk group uh, for uh, lung cancer screening, we want to make sure that these patients have reasonable life expectancy before you uh, uh, include them in your screening program. So that is very important. So. Makes sense. I wanted to just switch gears slightly, and I wanted to ask you if you notice over the years of your practice, if you notice an increase in the incidence of multifocal lung adenocarcinoma, it's a little bit concerning that a lot of times these patients are young, they may be non-smokers, and maybe the rate at which we're diagnosing multifocal lung adenocarcinoma anecdotally, according to some, has increased. I'm curious, in your experience, if, if you've noticed an increase in multifocal lung adenocarcinoma, and if so, why that would be? 
Actually, I'm totally I'm biased because I, I do so much of lung cancer work that I've seen many, many patients with uh, multifocal lung cancer. But my sense is uh, they're always there. We never realized that these uh, subtle ground glass nodules would eventually become cancers. So if you go back and I look at the old studies, many of these patients uh, done 10 years ago had multiple uh, ground glass opacities. So we never realized, we never labeled them as multifocal lung cancers. But now uh, this entity is uh, being recognized uh, more on a, on a regular basis. So we are aware of this entity. So the screening also allows us to pick up many of these ground glass nodules. So we are seeing them, but maybe they are always there. So uh, the other question is uh, management is also a problem for these patients. Uh, uh, unlike the uh, patients with the one cancer where you can uh, subject them to lobectomy or definitive therapy, in somebody with multifocal lung cancer, so multifocal ground glass opacities, we do not know uh, uh, how many of these will turn out to be invasive cancers which require treatment. So we do not know what options you can do. I mean, what are the options? You can't do lobectomy because the patient may have other nodules which may also require lobectomy. So you cannot take out more than two lobes. So these are these are difficult uh, uh, scenarios. So in most of these patients, we are we are uh, our in the uh, so it is a conservative approach. We want to see how fast they are growing. We are more concerned if they are developing solid component. Uh, we are more concerned uh, if the tumor density is increasing too uh, fast. So these are some of the things we look. But there there are many patients who have multifocal multifocal ground glass opacities. So I, it's maybe we are seeing them more carefully nowadays. The resolution of CTs have improved. The the prevalence and incidence may not have changed that much. But we become more aware of these things. Do you ever use um, specific formulas, for example, formulas that calculate volume doubling times, or do you just um, on your own sort of subjectively assess the rate of growth over time and change and increase in density, or do you sometimes use um, data like volume doubling times? This, this is, uh, we, we are not routinely using um, any of this uh, CAD software. We do not use any of this uh, volumetric assessments in our day-to-day uh, -day practice. Uh, for example, I mean, the, the formula is if in a sphere, if it increases by 26%, it is roughly as doubled in size. But then say a three millimeter nodule has become say even four millimeters increased by more than a third. But then it is still very small for us to uh, get a tissue for diagnosis. So an increase from three to four, though it is increased, uh, that will not help us in our management. Say a nodule which is uh, 8 millimeters has become 10 millimeters. So it has not only increased, but now it has uh, reached a threshold at which intervention is possible. We can establish a diagnosis. So these are the things which are more helpful. So mere volume, uh, an increase in volume in a small, very small nodule may not help us in uh, our management decisions, uh, recommendations. But after it reaches a certain threshold, it does make a difference. But then you also should understand that um, there is so much of uh, inter-observer variability in, in uh, nodule measurements. A increase in one millimeter is really increased or it's a error in my measurement. Then uh, whether there is a difference in the slice selection. So all these are the things which come into play. So we want to see that at least the nodule has increased by two millimeters or so. So that's what even uh, the lung rats uh, suggest that you should have 1.52 millimeters increase. I see you've done some research and some work in the field of radiomics. We just wanted to know, what are your thoughts on that field? Is it, or is it just relegated to research at this point, or do you ever see it becoming more of a clinical practice for the daily radiologist where we utilize radiomic imaging, radiomic features, and you know, conclusions that we can make from that? The, the radiomics, is, as you said, I uh, have a lot of interest in this field. Um, we, we 
generate so much of data we extract so many features from these uh, digital images so the the development of incorporation of radiomics into clinical practice will go hand in hand with uh, the usage of artificial intelligence deep learning methods uh, integrating them in your clinical practice so this data we get uh, from uh, radiomics is so huge that uh, we have to have this uh, artificial intelligent uh, tools to make sense of the data we are getting from this uh, uh, lung nodules or lung cancers so uh, we have to build uh, good models so when we have a robust model where the uh, software or the the models would allow us to predict the histology or invasiveness of tumor or mutational status which is driving the cancers then we can incorporate in the clinical practice so till that time radiomics will remain in the disease domain but uh, i'm sure with this uh, advances in uh, the uh, computational um, uh, abilities, um, uh, the, f the fast uh, computers, uh, we'll be able to integrate them uh, into clinical practice pretty soon. But they by themselves may not guide us in our treatment or decision-making process, but they would uh, add incremental value. So what we can learn from images or from in addition to the clinical history. So you don't feel like it would necessarily replace what we do on a daily basis? Oh, actually, I know what people think that uh, the artificial intelligence is going to replace radiologists. I don't, I don't believe in those things. Sure. Uh, I mean, uh, most of the stuff we do is uh, highly subjective. Mm -hmm. So we look at image, we, by intuition, we uh, derive some conclusions. We do not know why we reached that conclusion. You look at a nodule, say, it looks like a cancer. So you can't uh, say tell, uh, articulate it why you think it's a cancer. That is your uh, human mind, which is evolving, your neural network, which is so complex. So you cannot train a computer. You cannot uh, translate those into a, uh, you can write down a formula and give it to a computer. It's your own intuition, which is, I think, uh, more sophisticated, more evolved. Mm -hmm. So I don't think... Uh, this artificial intelligence is threat to radiologists. It will help you. So it help you may do simple uh, mundane tasks like measuring uh, this uh, tumor size, uh, measuring the tumor volume, uh, assessment of response to see how much it is shrinking. These things it will do, but the, the diagnosis still uh, rests with radiologists. Your uh, interpretive abilities, your experience, your intuition, those are all uh, very, very important. Well, Suba, you have nobody has more experience in intuition than you. So you're the ultimate gold standard. If anybody tries to create an auto artificial intelligence, uh, they'll have to against you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, that's too kind of you. But anyhow, <laughs> we wanted to ask you about uh, problem solving and chest imaging, which we can put in a little plug for you. Early in 2019, uh, a a new textbook was released entitled Problem Solving and Chest Imaging, of which you are the lead author. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about what your experience is like to author such a long landmark textbook. Uh, it, was, uh, it was a work with uh, Sunny Abara and uh, Jonathan Chang. Uh, it was great uh, working on this um, book. It took us many years, and I'm very thankful to all the authors, including you, Adam, who contributed a very uh, important chapter, very well written. Thank you. So uh, it, it was a very uh, good experience. Uh, first of all, uh, we get to read um, so many chapters. So it is like uh, reading your thoracic radiology once again, uh, long after you've done your fellowship. So that's, that's the first thing. R writing a textbook, uh, editing a textbook is actually more rewarding than you realize. So uh, when I started, I thought, okay, my the Harvard doesn't even recognize uh, textbook chapters. I mean, they don't care. They're only interested in uh, your uh, original articles. So why should you write textbook chapters? But uh, by writing a textbook chapters, you learn a lot. So uh, I enjoyed it. So it was a very good experience. 
Yeah, on Amazon, I'm checking right now, there's only 12 left in stock, so I'll have to buy it soon <laughs> to get my copy signed. Subha, could you tell us a little bit about your background in, in, in starting in India? I understand that you're from India and your early medical training started there. Could you tell us just a little bit about your background? So I, after high school, I went to medical school straight. So uh, medical school was a very good experience for me. So I did, uh, went to medical school in South India, uh, in, a, in the state of Andhra Pradesh, a city called Hyderabad. It's a very, very competitive uh, program. So after that, I did uh, my residency in uh, radiology. So it was a major university center. I was very fortunate that I was in one of these uh, premier institutes. Uh, so I was very well trained. So we had, um, at the time, uh, not many uh, centers in uh, India had all this advanced equipment, but I was fortunate that we had 1.5 Tesla MR, we had a cath lab, we could do all interventions. Uh, we had a spiral CT, we had a, a nuclear medicine department which was integrated into our uh, radiology department. So I had a very good experience. So uh, what I learned in that uh, residency has actually uh, shaped me. I'm very grateful for that my training. Uh, I had uh, worked with some amazing radiologists. Uh, my director was uh, a, a world-renowned MSK radiologist who worked in Albert Einstein uh, Hospital in uh, New York. So he came back to India. He uh, started this uh, major university. So I was very fortunate. So. I think you also had a lot of very strong clinical training in India as well. Is that right? Yes. Uh, I mean, the... Uh, when I was t the medical school actually had a great clinical training because the hospital I was, uh, the medical school, I was attached to a general hospital. That hospital did not have uh, uh, that, that much of funding. So the clinicians there relied heavily on their clinical knowledge to uh, make a diagnosis and they used their scant resources to uh, make a diagnosis. So they were very strong clinically. So because I, with the medical school, when I was doing my internship, my medical school rotations, so that experience shaped me a lot. So uh, that's what it is in most of the um, centers in not only in India, but many of the developing uh, countries where resources are scant. So use your all your skills, uh, clinical skills to, uh, to reach a diagnosis. So that way you use your resources more carefully. I see that even in your approach now in, in reading studies, you very much have that clinical foundation, which is so important. Would you say that the training in radiology residency in India is fairly similar to what you what we have in America? Are there things that Americans can learn from from the way things may be done differently there? The 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 university where I trained that is uh, very similar to what uh, you experience in America in most of the major centers, but that is not true for all the centers uh, in India. Uh, many of the uh, uh, other graduates coming from India may not have the uh, luxury or privilege enough to work in a major uh, hospital which is well equipped uh, in regards to radiology equipment. Uh, we had a very structured curriculum program because my uh, director of my program came from US so he modeled the program based on the US so we had this uh, everyday conferences uh, based on the uh, uh, body part we had a conference every Wednesday for chest every Thursday for GI every Friday for neuro so we were uh, trained his, his he built the program based on the American system so I was very well trained in that in that regards the difference is uh, in general people uh, uh, in India or in the other countries they tend to read more more they read textbooks more so there is uh, less of passive learning there is more uh, active learning Mm -hmm. So um, that is good thing and bad thing because you have to invest more time to learn on you by yourself. Uh, in uh, maybe in uh, US there is more of some passive transfer of knowledge. 
so you pass on knowledge more easily to uh, the uh, uh, residents in training and fellows in training so uh, there is uh, so there is no reason for them to go actively learn for themselves that's one thing so but uh, eventually i see that all the residents when they're preparing for the boards they end up reading a lot so in the final year they gain so much knowledge so that's remarkable Suba, could you talk a little bit about what drew you specifically to chest radiology? Was it any early mentors, maybe in person or through textbooks like Dr. Felsen? Mm -hmm. uh, Felsen, uh, of course, Felsen is a great book. I read that book so many times during my residency. Uh, it's, it's, it's a beautifully written. He has a style of his own. Uh, very, uh, uh, he's very written in a very humorous way. The small uh, uh, anecdotes and incidents he mentioned in his book, they, I still remember them. So he's such an amazing uh, influence. So I, I do uh, give credit to Felsen and other people. Uh, Fraser and Parry, who wrote such beautiful books, which uh, did influence my uh, taking up uh, chest radiology. The other thing is, uh, I realized that uh, chest radiology is a is a major thing in radiology. Almost 30 to 35 percent of the volume uh, is is chest radiology for everyone. So we think that we know chest radiology, but there are so many nuances, so many variations in how chest X-ray look. So it's not easy to interpret a chest X-ray. So if you look at the other way, there is a lot of turf wars. Some people want to take out various uh, specialities of radiology. There is a turf wars with interventions. Vascular surgeons want to take over. The cardiologists want to take over cardiac imaging. The neurosurgeons think they can reach uh, their neuroimages. But uh, the chest is safe. I mean, chest, we do something so specialized that people are afraid to uh, interpret on their own. So there is something very, very uh, uh, good thing about the chest is it is not easy to read. You think you can read it, but if it is that easy, we'd be losing our uh, turf to some other uh, specialty or some other uh, field of medicine, but we are not. So it's, it's highly complex and it requires a lot of training, uh, experience to do a good job. So, and because the volume is high, I thought chest is good. And, and if you know medicine, chest is basically practicing medicine. The more you know about the medical conditions, the better you are at uh, interpreting uh, all the chest images, uh, any, any imaging of the chest, chest X-rays or chest CTs or chest MRs. So uh, that actually uh, made me choose chest. I think that reading a chest radiograph correctly is one of the most challenging things in our field. Would you be willing to share with our listeners some hints or some secrets that you have in routine practice that you use when you read chest radiographs? The most important thing is always compared to the prior studies. <laughs> So it's, we are much better at picking up the changes. So that is the most important thing. So uh, it's more difficult to look at the chest x-ray without priors than looking at even a complex chest x-ray with priors. So that is the first thing. Always look for, search for the prior imaging. Now everybody has a chest CT. So you're not looking at a chest x-ray. If you don't have a comparison chest x-ray, please look at the chest CT. That's the first thing. Then you should always uh, correlate the chest x-ray findings with chest CT. That way you become bet better at interpreting uh, the uh, chest radiographs. The other approach is uh, you should use chest x-ray as a screening test. You should not uh, use it to make a specific diagnosis. You should have a, a very low threshold to uh, request or order other studies such as CT. So if you think that you can make every diagnosis on chest x-ray and that is where you get into problems. So uh, other thing is now with the uh, critical care imaging, so many post-operative uh, images, portable radiographs, you're seeing so many tubes and lines, devices every day, they come out with new device or some, some other line. So when you're in doubt, 
please call the floor and find out hey what is that i'm seeing here i do not know what it is so those are the things which are very very important so if you see a line uh, i've seen many retained uh, guide wires so if you do not realize that we say okay this could be artifact then you are actually not doing a good service so when in doubt clarify confirm with the uh, floor you reach SCTs very quickly and very accurately in a world where we have increasing pressure both in academics and private practice to read high volumes and also to re read cases at a very high level of quality do you have any advice that you can share with us for how to read quickly and efficiently while still maintaining quality uh, thank you so much Adam I, I don't know what to, how to say that but uh, the one thing that is you should when you're when you in the training period you should you should develop um, clear algorithms you should see very clear in your mind okay if I'm seeing this I want uh, if you're seeing looking at a pulmonary embolus so you should have clear things okay I want to look a filling defect uh, it should be at least uh, seen on two or three images uh, it should be in the center of the vessel there should not be any motion all those things if you lay down this criteria and once you make rules don't break them so if you say okay if you follow this criteria I'm going to call this as pulmonary embolus most of, most of the time you do not lay down those criteria so what happens is you look at the image you're in doubt so then you do not know whether it's embolus or not you're hesitant you go back and looking at the images again and again scrolling through again and again so the only way to uh, improve your efficiency is to be very clear in your mind this is where I'm going to call this as a embolus or this is the time and I'm going to call it a disease progression or this is where I'm going to call this as a, a pathological uh, lymph node the criteria should be very clear so before you make that reach that uh, develop your own algorithms do some research uh, reach the right conclusions and that conclusions whatever you reach uh, should work for you and stick to the rules and now and then periodically uh, attend the conferences read uh, about these uh, new articles, uh, reference art, uh, review articles or original papers. Keep improving your knowledge and define your criteria for uh, making a diagnosis. Once you lay down criteria, then you become faster. Same thing. So, okay, when are you going to call this as left ventricular hypertrophy or when are you going to call cardiomegaly, whatever it is. So, you should have some criteria. So once you have criteria, it becomes very easy to read. So, okay, this is fitting my criteria for this to be this. Therefore, I'm calling this as, uh, say, cardiomegaly. Same thing if you're looking at, say, pneumothorax or a skin fold. When would I call it a skin fold versus a pneumothorax? So how much should be the gradient? So these are the things you, you, you should do. Every resident should do it. Every fellow should do it. You do it uh, a number of times, then it becomes a, a second nature. So you become faster. Do you have any advice for any young radiologists or any, even any junior attendings who might be listening right now who really want to develop a productive career just like yourself? Any kind of words of advice that you might give? I would say you should enjoy life, uh, enjoy what you're doing. So, and always choose uh, a speciality which makes them happy. So once you're happy, you'll enjoy it, then you become more productive. Uh, do you have any particular thoughts, um, anything that m makes you really excited uh, about the future of chest radiology? Yes, there are so many jobs and we're not filling those jobs. So that should be uh, a good reason. So we all are working for a long, long time. So that's good. So uh, the volume is increasing. There is more and more utilization of the uh, chest imaging. So I see uh, from the day I started um, uh, as a fellow in MGH to now, we image so many patients, so many patients are critically ill. The critical imaging is going up. And the clinicians totally rely on chest radiologists for interpretation.
to guide them in their management. So we should have this uh, constant interaction with the clinicians to help them. So that will allow us to uh, grow more, uh, develop our specialty much more, uh, then do more studies. So we'll be able to do that. So this is what we have to do. Keep interacting with the clinicians, guide them in their management. And to do that, we should understand the clinical aspects of the disease as much as the clinicians do. And do you have any personal goals for yourself, maybe in the next five to 10 years, anything that you really want to accomplish? Um, well, what Mike is saying that when you're already at such a high level, what else no. is there to accomplish already? <laughs> exactly. No, no. I don't think I accomplished much anyhow. And, and the, the important thing is I want to keep working. I want to be productive. Uh, I want to see that more uh, residents uh, take up uh, chest radiology. So if you can uh, influence more of uh, younger residents to uh, become chest radiologists, that will be very satisfying for me. So there are so many residents, but hardly anyone goes into chest. Very few people go into chest for whatever reasons um, and reasons beyond uh, my comprehension. So I see why anybody would not become a chest radiologist because there's so much of uh, work and so many job openings and uh, many of these people can say in uh, major cities, major hospitals. So what is holding them back? Maybe their perception of chest radiology is influenced by some uh, dogma, which is not uh, valid. So maybe we have to change those things. Mm. So, Thank you so much, Suba. We are you. so grateful for your time. And th this has just been a fantastic interview. I learned so much. I hope that our listeners also benefit. It's been a tremendous honor to have you with us. And uh, we hope to have you again one day soon. Uh, thanks, Adam and Mike. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Cardiothoracic Imaging a podcast that journeys through the legends, legacies, and lessons of chest and cardiac imaging. We hope you have enjoyed listening and look forward to seeing you next time.